Thomas Long is a professor at Princeton, and, and he says that every once in a while, a pastor, when he steps into the pulpit, ought to stop and take a few seconds and just be with his people. So I want to just be with you for a minute here. Our city's been through a lot this week. And I just want us to be together. I was really blessed yesterday. Uh, we had some prayer time here in the sanctuary, and a number of people came to that. And we also had a, a prayer walk on the West End. And uh, so many of you turned up for that. I was so proud of our church. We could just be together and walk around the West End and see some beautiful people. I think even somebody maybe even came to Jesus or came back to Jesus in one of the groups while we were walking and talking and praying for them. We had to pray for a bunch of people in my group. There was a bunch of moms that were out there with their kids throwing football, and we said, can you pray for Can we pray for you? And the mom said, here, pray for him, you know, and just, <laughs> I'm like, I'd do the same thing. We're not all that different, are we? We're all in the same city. Have you ever seen something one way, but for whatever reason, you changed your perspective and then you saw it completely differently? And, and, and like it wasn't just that you saw more of the same thing, it's that you saw something else that you didn't see before. Has that ever happened to you? Anybody raise your hand if that's ever happened to you? I, I want to do kind of a thought experiment today. I got a few pictures to throw up here. Here's the first one. How many people here see a young lady? Raise your hand if you see a young lady. All right, now raise your hand if you see an older lady, if that's what the first thing you see, all right? Here's going to be another, this is the same picture, but just emphasize more. How many of you still see the young lady? Raise your hand. How many of you see the older lady? Okay, how many of you can see both of them at the, if, you, if you kind of change your perspective? Okay, most people can see both of them. I would give another example here. How many of you see a tree? Raise your hand if you see a tree, all right? Raise your hand if you see two animals. Okay, and what are the animals that you see? Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is, yeah, this is not a zoology class, so close enough. Um, uh, okay, here's another one, one more. How many of you see a lamp or, with the, or, or a, uh, a candle? Okay, how many of you see two people looking at each other? All right, all right. And how many of you can see both? Okay, a bunch of you. That's good, that's good. Here's the funny thing. A lot of times, once you see one or the other, like with the young woman or the old woman, when you're looking at that, it's hard to, once you see the one, it's hard to see the other one until you change your perspective. And that's not always an easy thing to do. It isn't easy in life either, but sometimes you have to change your perspective in order to see more. Like maybe you're in a discussion or an argument with a friend of yours or a spouse, a husband or a wife, and you couldn't understand for the life of you why they were saying what they were saying, but then you tried to see it from their perspective. Like you stopped being where you were standing and you went to where they were standing, and from where they were standing you went, oh, I see something totally different from over here because you changed perspective. We kind of had a big week this week in our city, but not only in our city, we had a big week in our family because Graham and Kara got engaged this week. Yes. And Marlene and I have been talking for years. We're eventually going to have some girls, and now we got one, right? And a delightful one at that. We're so happy to have Kara in our family. And, and this week, Graham gave her a, a ring, a diamond ring, 
And, and I remember when, when he showed it to us at first, it was over FaceTime, and he was showing it to us, and it looked beautiful and everything. But then when you saw it in real life, it was even more beautiful. And when you take the ring and you turn it in the light, you see different facets that are there in the ring that you didn't see before. Now, the facets were always there, but you didn't see it until you changed perspective. And when you changed perspective, you saw that here were some things that were there that I didn't know was there, but they've always been there, but now I see differently. Several years ago, and I've used this story before, uh, there was a special on the 50-year anniversary of D-Day, that fateful day on Normandy Beach, and, and they were interviewing some veterans from those days, and they interviewed a guy who I think was on Omaha Beach, and uh, he was explaining what happened on the, the ship that came in, you know, the, the, the boat that came in where the, the front gate just falls down, and they run out, and, and as soon as the gate went down, people started getting shot, and, and he was making his way to safety, and he said there was a moment when I knew there is no way we can win. Can't do it. We're going to lose. There's no way we can win. The very next person they interviewed in this documentary was a guy who was also there on D-Day, but he was in an airplane. And he said, when they interviewed him, that he could see all of our soldiers and he could see the enemy soldiers. He could see their reimburse, reimbursements, their reinforcements. This is harder than it looks. Uh, their reinforcements coming behind. He could see their reinforcements. And he said, there was a moment that came when I knew there is no way we can lose. Now, here they are, uh, two people on the same battle, on the same day, on the same side. And one of them said, no way we can win. And the other one said, there's no way we can lose. What was the difference? Perspective. See, if you persist in trying to see life and, and our problems and our identity from our own earthbound perspective, you will inevitably come to the conclusion that there is no way we can win. But if you will elevate... If you will decide to see things from God's perspective, because if you know Jesus, you are already, right now, this moment, seated with him in heavenly places. If you will choose to see things the way Jesus sees them, which is an eternal perspective, not an earthly momentary perspective, but a cosmic eternal perspective, you will inevitably come to the conclusion, there is no way we can lose. Can't do it. Can't lose. And what will be the difference? Would it be the circumstances of a change? Probably not. The difference will be your perspective. Take David and Goliath. You remember the story in the Old Testament, David and Goliath? Uh, you know, there's David. He comes in. He's bringing, so out of, what was it, bread and cheese, basically ancient Near Eastern pizza to his brothers, you know, on the battlefield. And there they were. And, and Goliath is the Philistine, and he's making fun of the people of God, and he's taunting the people of God. And David walks up, and, and the brothers are like, man, he is so big. There is no way we can win. And David said, he is so big, there is no way I can miss. <laughs> Actually, the real comparison wasn't between David and Goliath. The real comparison was between Goliath and God. You see, he, when David knew, yeah, Goliath's a lot bigger than me, but compared to God, he is nothing. It don't matter how big your giant is compared to you. It matters how big your giant is compared to God. And your giant is nothing. He is infinitely small. And we have some pretty big giants in our world right now. We have some giants in our city right now. We have a pandemic going on right now, threatening us, trying to take our life away from us. We have racial injustice in our city right now. It's a pretty big giant. We have political and ideological divisions in our country right now at 
epic proportions. And if you focus only on that stuff, is that, if that is where your gaze is, if that is what all you see, you will either be intimidated and overwhelmed or you're going to be depressed or angry. And that's not all. There are other giants out there. Some of you are battling giants in your own life. Personally, I know some people in here who are having battles for their health. I, I know some people who are having battles relationally in their marriage or with their family. You're worried about your kids, and there's some giants in your kid's life. And for some of you, it's your business or your livelihood, and, and you're wondering, how, how is God going to provide for you? Here's my question this morning. What do you see? That's the question. In times of crisis, it matters what you see. At times like this, on a day like this, what do you see? See, that's an important question because when what you see, what you focus on, what your perspective is, is going to affect what you believe and how you act on your worst day. So what do you see in this crisis? I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I see. If, if I just see this world right now from the perspective of the world, if that's the perspective I come at, here's what I see. I see division. I, I see hatred. I see fear. I see no reason for hope. If my perspective is only this world. But if I come and look at those very same things, you know, on those pictures, you could be looking at the very same picture, but you're seeing two different things. I could come and look at the very same things, but if I look at it from Jesus' perspective, here's what I see. I see an opportunity for me to humble myself and say, I need Jesus. Right? I mean, like this whole situation is, I'm, listen, I'm a pastor, and I'm trying to pastor people on the opposite sides of the political spectrum, and I'm trying to keep everybody together. And I'm, you know what's made me realize? I'm not a very good pastor, and I need Jesus. Yeah, this is an opportunity for me to be humble because I got sheep over here and sheep over here and I'm grabbing them by the wool and go, no, 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 come back, no, 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 come back. I need Jesus. And so do you. So this is a great opportunity. You know what the Bible says? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So guess what? If this is leading me to humility, it's leading me to a good thing. Another thing I see in this is I see, I see an opportunity to serve. If I see from Jesus' perspective, you know what I see? I see an opportunity to love. You know what Jesus said? He said, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing here in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, God's not all that impressed if you love people who love you. How hard is that? Pagans do that. But if you love people who hate you, who persecute you, who speak evil against you, you know now, you know what you're doing? You're acting like our Father in heaven who makes the sunshine and the rain fall on the godly and the ungodly. This is an opportunity for the church to step up and show the world that we know how to love each other. So you can choose to see fear or you can choose to say, all right, game on, devil. We're going to love each other. I also see an opportunity to see God and see the miraculous. I see an opportunity. Listen, most of the time in Scripture, the greatest miracles happen when it appeared to be the darkest. Did you ever notice that? I know a lot of times we, do, we read about, oh, miracle, woo! But we don't realize the context in which the miracle happened. I mean, for lots of biblical characters and biblical stories, had you interviewed them right after they experienced God miraculously showing up in their lives, they would have said something like this. Well, it started off as the worst day of my life. But God. 
That's what they would have said. Like, like take the nation of Israel, you know, they're coming out. They come to the Red Sea. It's all awesome. At first, you know, they're going to be free from slavery. They get to the Red Sea. Uh-oh, they can't go forward. They turn around, and there's Pharaoh and his armies behind them. This is a bad day. And God does a miraculous and opens the sea. Or how about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den? Generally, most of the time, real high percentage of the time, being thrown in a lion's den is a bad day. The angel of the Lord closed his mouth. Or how about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace? Again, most of the time, if you've ever been thrown in a fiery furnace, it's a bad day. But they met God there. I mean, I don't like the fire, but sometimes that's the place where you meet God. So what do you see? If you have your Bibles, turn them to 2 Kings chapter 6. I want to just very quickly look at a text in 2 Kings 6 about what we See, I'll, I'll just kind of tee it up for you and give you the context. In the context, the, the king of the country of Aram, the Aramean king, is against the Israelite king, and he's setting up these surprise entrapments for him, right? He, you know, he's trying to um, uh, capture the Israelite king, uh, and he's got all these tricks and things he's trying to do, and he'll lay entrapments and things like that. But every time he does that, the, the prophet Elisha tells the king of Israel, hey, don't go down there. The Aramean king has got an ambush waiting for you. And so he doesn't do that. So over and over again, this is happening. Finally, the Aramean king gets really ticked. He brings all of the people uh, in his inner circle. He comes into his, his uh, you know, whatever, his palace there. And he says, okay, which one of you is working for the CIA? He didn't say CIA. He said, which one of you is working for the Israelite king? Because every time we try something, he knows it and he goes the other direction. And they say to him, oh, king, none of us are traitors. None of us work for the CIA. Here's the problem. There's a prophet in Israel, and he tells the king of Israel everything the king of Aram says in his bedroom. Like, I don't know what you say in your bedroom, but I would not want what we say in our bedroom to be public knowledge. But that was what was happening to the Aramean king. So he says, where is this crazy prophet? Well, he's down at Dothan. Go get him. So they send an army down, and there's people on chariots and horses, and they surround it. And here's where the, I want to pick up with the text, 2 Kings 6, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. You ever felt this way? Like surrounded? Like everywhere you look, there's the enemy? I sometimes feel like that in our city. Wherever we look. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. I've had the same question. What do we do? I mean, remember, this is, this is the worst possible scenario imaginable for this guy, okay? I mean, remember, this is the ancient Near East. They have no Geneva Convention, okay? If they take a prisoner, they're going to torture them. It's going to be awful. This is the worst possible day he can imagine. So what do we do? Answer, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now stop right there. Just, just be the servant. Don't be religious for a second. You can go back to that in a minute. But, uh, but for, for just a second, don't be religious here and, and actually read the text and be this guy. Be the servant of the man of God and hear him say, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I mean, what would your response be? You're like, well, apparently in prophet school they have no courses in mathematics because it's pretty clear, army, one, two. 
But there was more to the story than he could see. Now notice what Elisha does. Elisha prayed. His first movement is to pray. Elisha prayed. O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked. Now stop right there. He had already looked before. But sometimes you have to look again. When God opens your eyes, you're going to have to look again. He looks again, and this time he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What's the point? The point is there's more to the story. You see, you see it, it wasn't that Elisha's servant didn't believe in God. Of course he believed in God. It was that he couldn't see the reality that was there but was invisible. And because he couldn't see it, it affected what he believed and how he acted on what appeared to be the worst day of his life. Worst day of his life. But God opened his eyes and he saw something. Now it's interesting to me that he asked the question here, before he sees this, he says, what do we do? Oh my Lord, he said. <laughs> what do we do? And so I want to ask that question. What, what do we do today? In our city as we find it, in our church as we find it today, what, what do we do? Well, right out of the text, I think there's a couple things we can do. Number one, ask the Lord to open your eyes. Ask the Lord to, ask the Lord to help you see what is there but is invisible to the physical eye. Ask the Lord to help you see things from his perspective. Now, you're going to need God to do this for two reasons. Number one, we don't naturally see things from God's perspective. Like, just left to our own, we're not going to say, oh, I see this from God's perspective. Our tendency is to limit reality to what we see with our physical eyes. I mean, Elisha's servant wasn't being rebellious. He wasn't trying to cause a problem. He just saw what he saw, and he responded the same way you or I might have responded on what appears to be the worst day of his life. I mean, let's not judge the guy. We'd have done the same thing. And here's what I find interesting. Elisha's first step is to pray. Elisha's first step was not to rebuke his servant. He, he didn't say, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Don't you know? Isn't this interesting? Sometimes at church, our first response is, what's wrong with you? Somebody just sees what they see. It's out there. It's right there. <laughs> And our response is, what is wrong with you? He doesn't do that. He just prays and he asks God. Listen, the, the Elisha's servant didn't need to be chastised. He didn't need to be condemned. What he needed was God to open his eyes to see what was there but invisible. And we need the same thing. See, in this story, I'm both of these guys. I'm the prophet and I'm also the servant. Because there are times I, I, I'm just there and I see what I see. And I don't need somebody to rebuke me. I need somebody to pray for me. To see what God sees. And sometimes I am the prophet in this story. And what I need to do is when somebody else is there, I need to pray for them. And say, God, help them see what you see. Because we have a tendency to only see what we see. <laughs> but there's more to our story too. Just like there was more to this story that the, the, the servant didn't see, there's more to our story too. The second reason we need God to open our eyes is that the enemy of our souls is constantly trying to blind us. Do you understand? There's a spiritual war going out there, 
And there is a Satan, there is a devil, the accuser of the brethren, and, and Scripture says he's trying to blind us. Second uh, Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Paul is saying there's a lot of people out there, they can't see, and, the re- and, and for some of them it's willful disobedience, and for some of them they have been blinded. So what do they need? They need prayer. They need to see. They need God to open their eyes. A sovereign move of God is what they need. And it's not just unbelievers who need their eyes open. Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. Listen, these are people who already knew Jesus. They were in the church at Ephesus, and here's what he prayed. Ephesians 1 verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may, some translations say, see, some say no, the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Do you see what he's saying? You need God to open your eyes to your inheritance, to God's power, because Paul knew that if God doesn't open your eyes to see his power, you're going to be entranced by the world and its power. So he prayed, I pray that you'll see God's power. And then he goes on to explain it. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. In other words, you think of the highest, most majestic, most powerful person or title in the world, Jesus is greater. And then look what he says. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Meaning Jesus is Lord of this age and the next one too. There's not a square inch in the universe that doesn't belong to Jesus. And God placed all things under his feet. Which things? Which things? Included COVID-19 things? And appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is, bo- which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Listen, if God opens your eyes to his power and who he is and his majesty and his sovereignty and his rule and his reign, it will change your perspective. It will change what you see. It will change how you see. It will remove fear. I mean, there's a lot of fear out there today, and there was fear in this story. I mean, I mean, the servant, he's like, what are we going to do? <laughs> I mean, that's the question. And the answer, 2 Kings 6, verse 16, here's what you do. Don't be afraid. That was the end. What are we going to do? We're surrounded. What are we going to do? Don't be afraid. Because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. See, fear is a natural reaction if you truly believe the enemy is greater than you, right? But if you believe that those who are with us are more than those who are with them, you're not afraid. Is that true? I mean, let me just use this illustration. I've used this some time ago to tell the story, but when I was in in the 80s in middle school, uh, you know, it it was kind of a thing back then, and don't judge me, okay? This is the 80s. Uh, It was kind of a thing just to go to the mall, and like walk around as teenagers at the mall. So it was back, this is the 80s, right? You remember? Yeah. So I remember going to St. Matthew's Mall, and back then there were several 
uh, shoe places like Foot Locker and places like that. You know what I'm talking about. It's just that all they sell is shoes. And I remember going in there, and this is, you know, this is probably hard for you to believe with my Greek God physique now, but uh, back then, I, I was a skinny little kid. Skinny little kid. And I, on one occasion, I go into this Foot Locker or whatever it was, and there was a guy that I had known. He was kind of a bully. He was older. He was bigger. He was stronger. And uh, he starts laying into me because I was there by myself. And, and he's like, you know, and he was bullying me. And I can't even remember what he said, but he said some stuff. And so, I, you know, he, the enemy, he was my enemy, but he was bigger than me. So I backed down. I remember just saying, oh, you know, whatever, and I left. The next week, I had a friend here from church. He was a, a member of our church. He was a friend. His name was Gene. And, and some of you who were here in the 80s, you remember Gene. Gene had won a Mr. Kentucky bodybuilding contest. Gene was big boy. Muscular. He used to work on old cars. And I'd go to his house and have him work on these. I would, you know, hand him a wrench. I didn't do anything. He was just... <laughs> but Gene was my buddy. Well, one day Gene says, hey, I'm going to go to the mall. I need to pick up a pair of shoes. So we go to the same store. The same guy is working. It was only one week later. So I walk up. Same guy, same store, I'm the same guy. Only this time, I'm with Gene. So I walk in ahead of Gene, and the guy lays into me again. He sees me, he starts saying stuff, whatever. Only this time, instead of backing down, I say, hey, hey, you got a problem, or are you just looking for one? Now, what was the difference? Same store, I'm the same person, I'm still skinny. I mean, I hadn't been to core combat and studied Brazilian jiu-jitsu or become a ninja in the last week. One difference. I was with Gene. And if I was Gene, with Gene, guess what? Those who are with us are greater than those who are with you, punk. You know what Scripture says in the New Testament? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And if you really believe that, it'll take fear away. The one that's in the world is not great. I got, it's, and we ain't talking about Gene. We're talking about almighty God, creator and sustainer of the universe lives in you. So no fear. So, so what? So ask God to open your eyes to that truth. God, help me see the way you see this. Because how many of you know God's not on the throne right now being nervous? He's not nervous about our city. Ask God to help you see. Number two, and this will be the last one, and I promise much quicker. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. There is a part of seeing that God gives us, and it's merely a gift from him, okay? He in, part, in this story, God just opens his eyes to, to see. Elisha prays, but God opens the eyes. And, and, and often, that's what it is, and that's what we need. Uh, however, as is often the case, God also invites us into the process. So we have a responsibility to be mindful of what we're looking at, what we're focusing on, what we're concentrating our eyes on. And we started the service with that text from Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews is so good about this because in Hebrews 10, he's talking about, listen, I know some of you there, the author says to those who are reading it, listen, I know you, in those days after you believed that some of you were persecuted, you, 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 you had your uh, possessions confiscated, you, you stood with people put in prison, some of you were put in prison, you were persecuted. Keep it up, don't, pers- don't give up, you got to persevere. 
And then in chapter 11, he gives them this great catalog of the heroes of the faith. By faith, this person did this. By faith, this person did this. So hold on to the faith. We're not those who shrink back and destroy. We move forward by faith. And then you get Hebrews 12, which says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and who are the witnesses? Those are those heroes of the faith who have run the race before us, and they finished their race. Since we're surrounded by them, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This is our race now. They already ran there. We, we can't have the heroes of the faith to come back and run our race. They ran their race, and they've crossed the finish line for them. Now we're in a race, and this is our race. We weren't called to the race in the Middle Ages. We're alive today. This is our race. So the author of Hebrews says, throw off all the stuff that's entangling. And run. how are you going to do that? Here's how you're going to do verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. <laughs> the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. <laughs> fix your eyes on the one who even though you were sinful and you were separated from God before you loved him, before you looked to him, he went to the cross for you. I mean, if you, if you take this seriously, you can never look down on anyone ever again because you're, you're a sinner too. If it wasn't for Jesus. And yes, when we get saved, we get taken into a new category of saint. Yes, we do. But before that, we were sinner. We, were, we had nothing to commend us to God. So anytime you see anybody else who's anywhere else along the spectrum, you, if you believe the gospel, you can never be arrogant about your salvation ever again. Because you didn't do it. <laughs> he did it. So consider him who endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, that's where he is right now. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you see what he's saying? The author of Hebrews is saying that by seeing Jesus, looking at Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, we won't lose heart. And listen, the enemy of our souls is wanting us to lose heart right now. He wants us to lose heart and quit. I mean, a big chunk of what we see in the world today is designed to make you lose heart. Don't do it. Right. Friends, if, if we are looking to anyone or anything else other than Jesus to empower us to keep running the race in our world today, you're going to grow weary and you're going to lose heart because nothing and no one else can do that. A political party can't do that. R reading a, a piece by uh, Scott Sauls recently, they told the story about one of the previous elections. And, and in one of these previous elections, um, they were having a life group, like a cell group, you know, small group at their house on a Sunday night. And, and they were there, and he was leading the group. And a lady comes in. She's very excited. And uh, when they said, hey, how you doing? She's like, oh, I'm so excited. They're like, really? She's like, yeah, because at church today, I saw a car with the, uh, a bumper sticker from the opposite political party of hers. And she was so excited because that meant non-believers were visiting their church. Imagine her shock when the life group leader said, um, that's my car. 
if our unity is built on politics, it will fall. Our hope for the future can't be built on anything else other than Jesus. If your hope is in politics or a political party or anything other than Jesus, it's a faulty foundation. I mean, I want you guys to hear me. I'm grateful for America, okay? I, I, feel, I, I consider myself, you know, a patriotic American, okay? But America is not the basis of my hope. Because America is temporary. The kingdom is eternal. I mean, Hebrews 12, if you just read to the end of Hebrews 12 that we just started, it concludes with, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. <laughs> That's the key. America can be shaken. The kingdom of God will never be shaken. And if we will fix our eyes on King Jesus and not on one another, we'll be united in our race because we cannot build our unity for our race that we got to run. We can't build it on anything or anyone else other than Jesus. Even when there's things that we hold very dearly, they have to be submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And our unity has to be around him. But let me just give you an example, okay? And, I, and I'm, I'm stepping out of the pulpit, okay? So everybody can see this is my opinion. Well, I think it was Groucho Marx who said, these are my opinions. If you don't like them, I have some other ones. <laughs> I am very strongly pro-life, okay? I'm unapologetically pro-life. That is my stance. And every year on Sanctity of Life Sunday, I try to make the best argument I can make for why you should agree with me on this. Believing it to be the biblical model, okay? That's what I believe. That's my conviction. I am pro-life. Now, here's the deal. There are some of you in here who aren't that way. You're, you're not pro-life, right? Now, um, I'm going to work really hard to change your mind, but guess what? I don't love people because they're pro-life. Our unity doesn't come because we're pro-life. There may be people in this room right now who say, no, I don't agree with you about that, but, but guess what? I submit the pro-life agenda to the agenda of Jesus Christ, who is Lord, and we can be in unity around Jesus even though we disagree on that. Amen. I know some of you are thinking, no, 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 you have to be pro-life. How, how do people get in heaven? Do you, do you get in heaven for being good enough? Do you get in heaven for, you know, passing a theological test? No, you get in heaven based on grace because of what Jesus did on the cross. In the same way, when I say I'm pro-life, okay, this is my conviction. I am pro-life when the baby is in the womb, and I am pro-life when they're out of the womb. Amen. Beginning to end. And that is going to lead me to some very different ideas than a few of you have here. The question is, what's our unity around? Here's my personal conviction. All right, I'm going to tell you, and, and I, I'm saying this with some fear and trembling right now. Because you have, you'll have a choice to either see things uh, in one way or to change your perspective. Here, here's my conviction. I am not convinced that justice was done in Breonna Taylor's case. I'm not. You may disagree with me on that. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. We got to be 
unified around Jesus, not around what we think was the verdict. And even some of you hearing me say that, that bothers you a little bit. Ask yourself the question, what is our unity built around? Is it built around Jesus or not? Is it? I mean, here's the deal, you guys. Here's what's happening in our world today. It's being revealed to us that our unity wasn't actually around Jesus. It was around agreeing on stuff. And when that happens, unity will crumble every single time. And in the world we live in, there is a Satan that's trying to divide us. He's trying to discourage us. He's trying to divide believers between black and white and Democrat and Republican. And if we'll all just drop those things and say it's about Jesus, we'll get unified around Jesus. I want to be very clear about this. There are some hard days coming. I don't mean like, hey, the boat might rock a little bit. I'm saying the boat might flip over. And in that moment, if we're not unified around Jesus, New Life Church will not survive. And neither will our country and neither will anything else for that matter. We got to be unified around Jesus. And, and, and if maybe if you disagree with me on something, it's, you're allowed to be wrong and be in our church. And I, and I love you. I do. And, 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 that's our, and, that, and, and that's where our unity's got to be around Jesus. So how are we going to do that? Everybody's got to quit looking at each other and start looking to Jesus. One more illustration, then I'll be done. I have these magnets. I borrowed these from Butch Hodge 15 years ago. <laughs> So they belong to, I belong to Jesus, but these magnets belong to Butch. Um, here's the thing about magnets. If you take them, they've got a little white dot on there because that's the, the head, right, the St. Paul. If you take the, the magnets and you try to put them head to head and have them face each other, do you know what they do? They repel each other. If the magnets face each other, they repel each other. But if you have both of these facing upward, facing the same direction, look what they do. They magnetically attract each other because they're looking the same direction. And their attraction is greater than gravity. Thank you. That, thank you. Thank you, Tammy. This is very deep and profound scientific illustration. I, I, you know, I just want Butch to give me kudos for this illustration of science. Okay? Just call me Tim the science guy. Okay, here's the point. Here's the point. We've got to be looking to Jesus, all of us. We've got to be looking to Jesus because we have the opportunity right now to face the same direction, to quit basing our unity on anything other than Jesus and fix our eyes on him. One last scripture and then I'll close. There's a story in Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, which was a bad time, Uzziah had been on the throne for 52 years. By comparison, in the last 52 years, we've had 10 presidents, okay? 52 years he'd been on the throne. They had gotten more powerful under his leadership. And in the year he died, everybody's wondering who's on the throne, who's in charge, what's going on. And Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the What do you see? 
Who's on the throne? He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It matters what you see. You know what happens? Isaiah goes, oh boy, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Because when you see Jesus on the throne, when you see the Lord high and lifted up, you're going to realize, oh boy, I need to be cleansed. The angel comes with a hot burning coal from the fire and touches his lips and he says, you're cleansed. And and then God says, who can I send? Who's going to go for us? And Isaiah said, put me in the game, coach. Here am I. Send me. You see, the response from seeing Jesus high and lifted up, from seeing him on the throne, from seeing things from Jesus' perspective, is you have a mission now. And you say, here am I. Send me. Send me. 